You're listening to an Anazal Ministries podcast. What can we learn about our God? By looking into the many and varied gods of the different worlds of Dungeons and Dragons. We're going to be answering this question and a lot more today on our episode of Systematic Ecology. We are the Priest of the Geeks. I'm your host, Christian Ashley. And I am, of course, joined by my good co-host here, Josh Rosengrant. How are you doing, Josh? I'm doing good. All right, man. So while we're here, like, what have you been geeking out on recently? So really, the last day or two, I have been geeking out on all of the announcements that Wizards of the Coast has put out at Gen Con about the upcoming future of Magic Gathering. And okay. in particular, the fact that they're doing a collaboration with Assassin's Creed, which really that's two of my favorite things, which means I'm going to go broke next year. But that's okay. <laughs> like uh, just. Uh, introducing new cards to the game or something else? Yeah, so I looked at it a little bit, and I thought they might be doing what they've been doing with, like, Doctor Who or Warhammer, where they release Commander decks for it, or Lord of the Rings, where they have a whole set. It looks like they're just going to be releasing these special-themed packs. Uh, I didn't see too much about it yet, and I'm not sure of the details, but it seems like they're going to be... They're called Beyond, Beyond Packs, I think. <clears throat> Uh-huh. And they basically try to tell the story is what I got out of it. I'm not sure what that's going to mean and what it's going to look like, but I'm interested. Okay, fair enough. Uh, as for me, I have been, I mentioned on an earlier episode, I've been going through the entire Pretty Cure series, which for those of you who don't know, listening, it's a Magical Girl series that uh, has 20 total seasons of all separate worlds and stuff like that. So I am now at Heart Catch Precure. Do what? I said, that's a lot of seasons. Yes. And well, I can get through it because I have no life and I can watch things, you know, through my illicit means at two times speed and get through that. So I'm really enjoying it. I think I found maybe my second favorite pretty cure in the franchise and cure Marine. And of course, cure passion sets in a being the first at this point in time. So I'm really enjoying that. But That's that. Let's actually get into the meat of the discussion today. That being, of course, we are doing an episode on the cosmology of D&D. This is kind of pseudo another part of our origin series we've been doing. We're not going into the creation of all these worlds that that may come up at some point in time, but more like how does everything work within creating a world that has other planes of existence around it, as well as different pantheons all in the midst of all the wildness that, and wackiness that comes with them playing Dungeons and Dragons. Now, uh, Josh, I've gone on record before how I've been introduced. I can't remember if you have. Would you mind introducing, uh, explaining to the audience how you were introduced to D&D as a concept? Sure. I, I think I have addressed this maybe once or twice before on the podcast, but more or less when I was in uh, uh, high school, probably sophomore year, there was a relatively new club that appeared in my school. Uh, called Geeks Guild. Very fun name. And oh. I was like, oh, that's fun. And I, and I showed up and I saw what it was about. And it was largely a, a group of friends who had come together and decided to make an official club where they just they, they hang out and did a lot of different nerd stuff. It was great. And one of the things they did was they had a Dungeons & Dragons campaign. And uh, being my nerdy self at that time, I was like, well, I've always kind of wanted to try that. It seems cool. Might as well. And I joined up with them. And it was probably the most fun I had for for all of high school was uh, playing D&D with those guys. 
Very nice. And I mean, it continued, and I ended up DMing a bit for uh, some of my family, and then went to college and got in a bunch of different D and D campaigns. Sometimes more than I probably should have been at the time. And it was a it was a, a good old time. I even got back into DMing towards the end of last semester, and have been uh, going on strong. All right. Very nice. Now, uh, as for me, I had heard of the name before and obviously growing up in a very conservative Baptist environment. It was always very derogatorily mentioned, if it was mentioned at all. So I didn't really know what it was outside of people saying it's bad. And so eventually when I do get into college, one of my good friends, Matthew Bailey, a friend of both Joshua Noel and I, we together, uh, he wanted to run the game. He'd done it before. Uh, so what had happened there, we played through 40, which I know other people will say probably not your best introduction to Dungeons and Dragons. I, I've also heard people say they really love the system, the way they did it there. Uh, do you have any particular feelings one way or the other? I even, uh, I even managed to pick up a copy of the fourth edition PhD recently from like a thrift store. And I, I read through it and I'm like, this is a very different take that I would be interested to try sometime. Okay. Yeah. So it introduced me to the core concepts there. I made my first, you know, your my high elf wizard, evocation wizard or whatever it was. And then I know evocation would be what it is now in 5e and had a blast doing it. Uh, then we moved on to 5e. I have done it um, since then as player and DM um, from all sides, mostly in 5e is where I've kind of stuck. So that's been a lot of fun. So that's it for how we got introduced to the game. Now, after that, let us go. And this is a very broad segment I'm bringing up here. So don't feel like you have to go over everything because I certainly won't. There's only so much knowledge I have. But when when it comes to the the topic of the cosmology of D&D, let's go through some of the various pantheons there in the game. Yeah, there are a lot to be certain of. And depending on how you look at it, technically there's either infinite or just all of them, every possible one, it, it, depending on your perspective. Uh, but of course, there's by far the most popular and the most well-known would be the one of the, the, the main pantheon of the main region that people tend to play Dungeons & Dragons inside of, which is the Faerunian pantheon. And this, you know, once again, uh, things get a bit messy when you look at the different pantheons, especially because it depends on where in the timelines you are, because, oh boy, yeah, I mean, this podcast is no stranger to weird timelines and even weirder worlds, and uh, fans of both Mar of like Marvel and DC Comics and how everything gets rebooted every time will be pretty familiar with kind of the structure of it. So it depends mm -hmm. on where you are in the timelines and how recently things have been rebooted. But there are all sorts of... Uh, members of the Faerunian Pantheon from time to time. Uh, some of the more familiar ones, uh, depending on what you've been in, there's of course uh, the Dead Three, which if any of you have played any of the Baldrigate games, you may recognize them. Uh, there are also Magic cards now, thanks to the Baldur's Gate crossover with Magic. Um, there's Saloon, God of the Moon, very well known. Shar, Goddess of Darkness. Uh, Sylvanas, God of Nature, pretty pretty big one. Torm, Waffle. Tear as well as Law and Justice. And this is, and as I mentioned earlier, the lines get a bit fuzzy, but at times you can also attribute perhaps the two most well-known uh, deities 
uh, Bahamut and Tiamat, the two draconic yes. deities. Of course, they, the draconic pantheon is its own entity as well, but depending on where you are, they can also be uh, related. Yeah, it's so funny. Um, doing some of the research we did on another episode about like uh, the origins to creation of Dungeons & Dragons itself, you see how the game kind of updates itself over time. And in the basic version of D&D uh, &D and AD&D, you don't get a lot of, to the essence of their own versions of deities. It's more, uh, you'll have your your Japanese deities, your your Finnish deities, Aztec, Mayan, uh, Greek, Roman. Greek, Roman pantheon. Yeah, and then later on, there's there's some stuff to add along the way from other sources, like uh, Michael Moorcock's books as well. And then it's really in third edition where they start like solidifying okay we need to make our own and then expands in fourth edition and fifth edition kind of like builds up on what's been there in the past and as someone who came in in 4e like i'm so glad because that's that was my introduction it went to this question in a second about our favorites and all that uh to ioon and stuff like that like i made an entire character like i read that segment of i think it was the player's handbook or something like that and i it's been over 10 years, so I don't remember, but it's like, wow, this is so fascinating. And just to discover like these, this deep lore here of all these other gods is like, this God is affiliated with the orcs and Grunch. And you have, uh, even beyond the gods themselves, you have demons and devils too, and how they play into the whole idea of this huge hodgepodge of everything coming in here. Cause you have, you have your Asmodeus and all that. I mean, you brought up two things that I really wanted to hit on while we're talking about pantheons, which is that, A, um, there are the different um, racial groups have their own pantheons in addition to the overall operating uh, program. Like you, you mentioned Grumsh, the patron god of orcs, if memory serves. And also, also sorts of different uh, races have their own pantheons that sometimes function within the main favoring pantheon, but other times they're outside. But the other thing that I, that I really liked was you were talking about how, shall we say, real-world pantheons, pantheons um, known from mythology of our world. There's a lot of lore based on how they interact with uh, the Faronian world. In fact, it, if you look into the lore, it actually does say that they are canonically the same uh, gods that, that so uh, were said to exist on our world. And that they just migrated across the dimensions because they were looking for more followers. It's fascinating. Yeah, there's there's some, there's some wild stuff in some of the deeper lore. Yeah, I mean, I'm glad I have you on here for this because, like, n my knowledge is, I wouldn't say it's like surface level, but it's not like the highest level. Let's put it that way. So anything I can glean from someone else who knows a little more, I'm all for it. Yeah, and as, as I'll probably get into later, uh, deity structures and the, the workings of gods inside the uh, the worlds of D&D tends to be something that I focus on both as a DM and when I'm a player. I like my characters to get involved uh, with, with the gods, which is a bit, uh, sometimes a bit much, admittedly. But yeah. My, my first really, really um, deep character... I say really deep, comparatively deep character, not just yeah. a uh, self-insert, 
was a cleric <laughs> who started out with, you know, basically nothing about him. And he was just this cleric in this weird world. And then we slowly discovered through the course of the game that this world, which seemed to be somewhat monotheistic, atheistic world. Uh, oh, actually, the gods have existed the whole time. And there was this event. And then they kind of went silent, but they're still around. And he ended up leading kind of a revivalist group of uh, bringing the religion back, which was a really fun storyline and has definitely set me in my ways of just really liking doing uh, deity stuff in D&D. Yeah, I'd like to go a little more in depth on some of my stuff, but I know one of my current players listens. Austin, if you're out there, if you tell any of this to TJ, I'll murder you. (laughs) But... Uh, just this idea of, I mean, for me, obviously, we're both Christians. We come to this point of, okay, God is God, and that's the only God. But then I get introduced into a world where there are other gods. How does that work? Assuming this place is real in the omniverse, what have you. And basically, I come to the point of they have deity-like powers, but they are not, at, at best, they may just still be just little g, God. Versus him. So, and I know oh, that, that's one of the reasons people uh, in the satanic panic days would, would go, oh, you're worshiping other gods. You, these are idols and stuff like that. It's like, no, that's, that's not really how it works. Yeah, it, it's really not. It's something that I was going to go into later that just they're, they're, they're characters. We, we, it's not something we say is real. It's something we all acknowledge is not real. And that's yeah. why we like it. Um, but also to your point where the gods uh, are all little G gods, as you said. And th- there's a very important thing in D&D where, it, at least following kind of the standard canon, which, once again, D&D is what you want it to be. Your lore, mm-hmm. you can throw everything that's ever been written out the window and play whatever you want. It's your world. Have fun with it. Um, that being said, the in the standard lore, the gods uh, usually didn't like create the world. Sometimes they they created certain beings and certain aspects, but none of them created existence itself. Um, perhaps a little existential, but the, there's a very big difference where they are. There's the gods are mortal in in a very strange sense, because of course we usually uh, say mortal when we're talking about the not dead deity people, like humans and whatnot, which is true, they're mortal. But in D&D, gods are mortal too. Gods can die, Mm -hmm. gods have needs, and their powers are limited. Uh, D&D in particular, and this is more true in older editions, you might actually know more about this than I do, because they don't talk about it at all in 5th edition, but when you're looking back on the lore as a whole, uh, the gods, their abilities are determined on their portfolio which not a word ever used in the 5th edition book that I've seen, but uh, still kind of attributed. Because basically, when they say portfolios, that's what they are the god of, what they have their power over, and what gives them power. Uh, so to, to prior examples, uh, Bahamut is the god of good dragons, among other things. And what his powers are and what he gets his power from is good dragons. And very... Another interesting note when it comes to that is that the portfolios that gods have are not static. 
And what I mean by that is that they can gain or or potentially lose, but usually not lose, uh, new portfolios over time, uh, generally speaking, as an interaction with another deity, and usually by conquering them in some way, uh, and perhaps subsuming them as well. And so it's not uncommon for the, the powers that deities have to kind of get consolidated over time until there's some kind of tragedy. And then suddenly the old strong gods have died and their portfolios get scattered and then new smaller ones rise back up. Fascinating. Yeah, I don't think I've ever seen anything in official 5e material that says the word portfolio, but like you have the their concepts and like this is what they're associated with in 5e especially. But that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, that's kind of what the cleric subclasses are based off as well, because you get you know, life, death, forge, knowledge, all, all yeah. different things. All right. So I kind of spoiled mine a bit, but what's uh, your favorite deity from the game? Do you have one? I just, uh, there's hundreds of them. How do you narrow them down? So I'm going to give you three answers to this. Go for My it. My first answer hey, is, I'm all about is cheating. very, very basic. I love Bahamut. I love Tiamat. I love Vecna. Three of the mm. biggest, what, most well-known names I know, but I love them. They're cool. Uh, they show up in any story. It's interesting, interesting already. Uh, and while technically not a, a deity, a near deific uh, character in the uh, Demon Lord Orcus, also very fun. He, is, he has a lot of very interesting story aspects, too, and he, how he interacts with various deities are also interesting. Answer number two oh, yeah. is, of course, my homebrew world. And the, the the gods I've been working out of there, I've got I've got to say I'm I'm relatively proud of some of them. <laughs> I, I am uh, I can tell enough of, that I'm not that good that some of them are very you know I don't know campy shall we say they're just little pithy mm. things but there are some that I quite enjoy. My last answer is once again going to uh, I've been talking a lot about magic in this in this D and D episode which is. Not that surprising for reasons I'll probably talk about later, but the Pantheon of Theros. Uh, Theros is originally a plane for Magic the Gathering, but it was published as a D&D setting in an official book. And it's a super cool plane, and it has a super cool structure. Theros is, almost everything there is based on belief. Um, the plane itself is based on belief. The way people believe in things affects the reality itself, uh, and even more so than on other worlds the people's belief about the deities affects the deities. Very much like if you've ever read Percy Jackson, or more specifically Heroes of Olympus, yeah. where they talk about uh, the gods The gods themselves talk about, if you ever had two people believing something so strongly about you that are so contradictory and you feel yourself splitting apart. That's the kind of stuff you get on Theros, where the what people believe about the gods is what is true of the gods. More or less. And also true of the world. And it's a very and I think it's a really cool setting. Great answers. Yeah, I'm gonna cheat too and do more than one. And I mean I mentioned Ayun uh, introduced Nefori, just the, the goddess of knowledge and the goddess of making sure information is spread among people. I just as someone who likes to learn, as someone who likes to like keep going beyond what I'm told, hey, this is as far as we want you to go, like I really respect that. And I love doing it to the point of actually uh, in my first campaign I ever ran as a DM, 
I also did this for a pun. We'll get there for a second. Uh, Ayun and Tiamat actually merged after a, a battle the two fought together. And uh, third parties as well were interfering, causing them both to die. But they merged to this one being who essentially became the head librarian of the town where all my players were playing, making her, when she revered her dragon form in battle, finally, after she had recovered enough, uh, a big bookworm. And... <laughs> and my players all took psychic damage from that because I, I just can't go without making puns as time goes on. <laughs> I, I, uh, so I really, <laughs> oh yeah, I, I really appreciated uh, her. Uh, I, I mean, you can't go wrong with your your platinum dragon and uh, Tiamat as well. Bahamut and Tiamat, the the rivalry the two of them have together and how that affects the world through your chromatic dragons and your metallic dragons and then bleeds under the dragonborn as well and your kobolds even to that extent too uh love that i've also this is a super obscure one but it's the only one when i was creating this character for another campaign that made sense his name is sendor uh, and he is from third edition i think he's the god of time so uh, i had created the character who was going to be an asmr and she and her twin brother were being raised in this orphanage together as long as everyone else in that campaign was as we grew up a long time and she could not say his name because he had been killed by Therizdun and there had been a curse put upon it so whenever she would say try to say his name it was replaced by another god so all these people kept hearing the names of other gods and goddesses and I had a fun time like unraveling that mystery. So it's another one very personal to me. I love the two of them as well. So another aspect we get into D&D is that the material plane isn't the only really uh, noticeable plane of existence. We have the Shadowfell. We have the Feywild. We have the Grey Waste, Pandemonium, the Elemental Planes, uh, Isgard, so on and so forth. Like, let, Let's go through a couple of those real quick. Do you have anything you want to focus on? I was like... I mean, I have a list in front of me of the different planes, but of, I mean, ones I like to talk about, I mean, of course, looking at the different, there's, but let's, let's talk about a little bit how they're broken up before we, before we get Yeah, yeah. Because there, now there's a lot of different ways of organizing the planes and trying to view them in relation to each other. Um, the main two of which are either the Great Wheel or like the World Tree. Uh, and the Great Wheel is what's presented in 5th edition as kind of the standard. And you have basically it's split up into the upper planes, the lower planes, the which uh, the upper and lower planes collectively are the outer planes. Then you have the inner planes, which are the elemental planes, so earth, water, fire, and air. And then you have the material plane and its two reflections. So the material plane, as you mentioned earlier, is kind of what you think of as the world, just earth-ish. It's kind of what sometimes it's also. Yeah, the solar system around it. But that gets really murky when Spelljammer exists, so let's not worry about that at all. So the two reflections of Earth you both mentioned are the Feywild and the Shadowfell, kind of a, a, a lighter reflection and a darker reflection. Not in terms of good and evil, per se, just in terms of kind of feel. Because the Feywild has good and evil, and the Shadowfell is still pretty much just evil, but is, is a little wonky. Evil and neutral. Say. Yeah. So, looking at that, that's what we kind of are presented with, and that's what we're shown. However, once again, if you dig back into the lore a little bit, 
And I believe there is one reference to this in the in the fifth edition player's handbook in the section talking about cosmology. There is another plane that is not listed in Great Wheel uh, cosmology like that. It is a plane that is at the center of all the outer planes, which is weird because if you look at the diagram, the center of the, of the outer planes would then be the inner planes, and the center of that is the material plane. But no, there's this outer plane that is in the center. So it must be then uh, you know, another dimension of the map, almost. And this plane is called a lot of things. Uh, the most common name is called the Outlands. This is my favorite plane that I ever learned about. So it's called the Outlands. It's called God's Land, uh, as in multiple deities' land. Uh, it's also called Friendly Opposition, and a, a bunch of synonyms of that. Basically, other than the material plane itself, this is the plane where everything comes together. This, this plane is inherently neutral. It is the true neutral plane, because when you look at planes, they're, they're also divided into the outer planes, at least, are divided based on how they reflect with the alignment system, which I definitely don't want to get into, because, oh boy, alignment is a mess. But this true neutral plane, it's, it's so neutral that uh, the powers of everybody there are dampened while there. Time itself seems to be dampened in, in, in some way. Uh, the strongest beings, even deities, aren't able to get to the center of the plane because things become so neutral that chemical reactions stop working, magic stops working, everything stops as you approach the center. So, of course, this is the perfect place for an interplanar bazaar and for just peace among all of entities to just kind of a very tenuous... It's not that we like each other, that we're peaceful. It's just we literally can't attack each other. So I guess we'll uh, tr trade amongst ourselves and be able to uh, go from plane to plane. So there's this, this whole city where there's gates that lead different places, which is Sigil, which you may have also heard of. Uh -huh. And it's it's a whole thing. I love it. Oh, yeah. Once you actually get into the nitty gritty of like beyond just basic your fantasy realm kind of situation in D&D, there's a ton to explore that I, I highly doubt people who have been playing for years have seen everything that the game has to offer, that they've been to every single plane in existence uh, in, in the wheel, so on and so forth. But like, is there a particular one that you like really going to and exploring when you're playing or like when you're fleshing it out as a DM? As it, I mean, definitely the Outlands, I'll be honest. Okay. But if, if we're ignoring the Outlands, then I'd say I definitely like the um, the more chaotic neutral planes. There's a lot of very interesting things to do with them, uh, like like Limbo and Pandemonium. Uh, but there's, there is another, another layer that I should talk about that is also one of my favorite things. Uh, surrounding and encompassing all of these planes is the Astral Plane. Mm-hmm. <laughs> which is kind of the great nothingness between everything and also kind of still a thing. And we still have to ignore Spelljammer for this to not go off the rails. Uh, for those of you who don't know what Spelljammer is, I've mentioned it twice, so I should, I should at least tell you what it is. Spelljammer is like, hey, what if all of the different worlds that we played in were like different galaxies and, you could, and there was magical space travel, except for space wasn't space. Space was the astral plane, but it was also space. Don't worry about it. Yeah, so it's a, it's a bit of a mess, but it's really it's a cool setting, and they did just come out with it in fifth edition, kind of. Uh, mm -hmm. Yeah, I think the general consensus from people who played before is it's not exactly a dumbed down version, but more accessible. 
that's that's pretty much the if we're being charitable. Nutshell is that it's not yeah. necessarily dumbed down, but it's certainly more more open to interpretation and more standardized and a little just easier for people to understand. Which you know has good things about it. Yeah. yeah I, I'm a person who loves specificity. So as time has gone on in 5e, I've gotten a little irked with like how some of the directions they're taking with like, oh, this they, could they be how things more are. General and more general. Yeah. It's like, yeah. So that's what it is there. As far as planes are concerned, I mean, maybe it's basic, but the Feywild has always been something I'm super interested in, in this reality that looks so close sometimes to what we would see in the material plane. But there's always a hidden agenda there. There's always, I have to watch every single word I say because it could get twisted and used against me. And sometimes oh, I, even I used for me. Fate. I love the face yeah. as a political thing. Uh, there, was, there was one example from, uh, it was from a podcast, I think it was from Tabletop Champions, which I definitely listened to a lot back in the day, where... They walked into the Fey Wild, where they interacted with the Fey for the first time, and as a greeting, this this Fey creature went, "Oh, can I have your name?" And they said <laughs> yes. They gave him their name, and they're like, "Cool, thanks. Now your name is your name backwards." Bye. And then for everyone else in the reality, they just remembered, "Oh yes, their name is just backwards from what it used to be, and that's normal." Yeah, that's one thing too. I always, when I do to put my players in the Fey Wild, eventually. I write down everything someone says because there are always ears listening. <laughs> if you say the wrong thing at the wrong time, you owe someone a debt or you have to give them something. But that also works for the Fae too because they have to be careful about what they say. So it's super interesting to me that I have to be on my guard as I'm speaking to say things that, okay, they would say word it this way. So I really love doing that. Um, I mean, elemental planes too, like, if we can be broad, like I just love them as a concept to this place is constantly on fire. This place is constantly submerged in water and so on and so forth. And I love putting uh, player characters through that, see how they handle being something that's so alien and weird compared to where they are. It's so inhospitable to their ideas of existing, how that works out there. I've also, because I made uh, an NPC villain called the bee holder who held jars <laughs> of bees and threw them at people uh, because he was tied to the elemental plane of bees, which I created. I uh, also enjoy that <laughs> just to screw with people. And, and that's a good note too. While, while the inner planes, the elemental planes are usually just looked at as the four, there are the different subplanes in between them, which, yes. never, which hardly ever get explored, but you can extract all the way out to the plane of bees, which I love <laughs> and might have to write down now. Uh, I'll definitely have the plane of ducks. I already had a whole duck thing going on, so nice. But um, hey, go for I, it. D and D's all about ceiling, man. I would be remiss not to mention there's there's like four other planes that that I should mention since we're having this whole plane discussion. There yeah. is um, the ethereal plane, which uh, sort of connects the material plane slash material planes around and touches uh, the other outer planes at certain points. And it's very much this border plane, not like the astral, but kind of like the astral, which is why people uh, tend to get them a bit confused from time to time. And then there's not quite a plane in the normal sense, but worth mentioning, there's the Far Realm. The Far Realm is basically Cthulhu land. That's where all of your Eldritch monstrosities and at 
and a lot of aberrations in general come from. It's this place beyond anything conceivable that might not technically even be a place, and it's just very little is known about it. But then the, the other last two that I want to talk about are the positive and negative plane. Yes. Kind of the farthest out of the outer planes, kind of a culmination of them almost. The negative plane is just pure... I can't even say nothing, just pure unlife. Uh, it's If you ever went there, you would just take necrotic damage until you died. The positive plane is even more interesting, but first, the negative plane... There's, there's one very interesting lore tidbit about it that I, that I love, which is if somebody planeswalks to the negative plane, the uh, putting their, like let's call it positive mass, into the negative plane uh, messes with reality a little bit. And so to even it out, a bit of, let's say, negative mass is distributed into the material plane in the form of, I think they're called night walkers. They're like, these like CR like I don't know fifteen or yeah. something. They're, they're pretty. I big, think they're strong. actually twenty. Twenty, like yeah, they're, they're yeah. pretty darn strong. And one gets put into the world for everybody who goes to the the negative plane. Yeah, so it's it's pretty weird. But the positive plane is is funny. It's like the plane of like ultimate like life and radiance and such. But like so much that actual creatures can't survive there. They. The it's too much of a good thing for them. Yeah, it's too much of a good thing. The description of what happens to a creature that goes there is basically something along the lines of they get so much life energy that they just kind of explode. <laughs> Which oh, yes. I think is, is quite a way to go because it, it also uh, heals you really, really quickly while you're in there. So there's, you get you might get trapped in this weird kind of life limbo where you're exploding and healing just as fast as the other. Yeah. I, I'm glad you mentioned those other subplanes of the elemental planes because that reminded me of something. Uh, two years ago, I ran uh, some of my players for a couple, not one shots, so it was like four or five total, where there's this region of my world called the Floating Isles in the middle of the ocean. And they learned through the process that every single island there is tied to one of the elemental planes. And not only that, but they're all on the back of dragon turtles going around in the ocean that's why they're floating aisles because they keep moving uh it's just so much fun when you can explore with these ideas in D D of the basic concepts they present to you and like here's the concrete stuff here's what you can make and we've kind of gone over a little bit here actually you even brought in your homebrew gods that you created but like how important is it for you as a player and as a dm to have gods inhabit and exist in the worlds you end up in so yeah like, like i mentioned before my my first really in-depth character was a cleric, and ever since, I've been on this... Actually, it's my two first really in-depth characters back-to-back were clerics. And just... I have just always, since then, been very on board. Alright, let's see what the divine politics are in this world. Mm. How, how are the gods interacting with each other? How are they interacting with the world? What effects do they have on each other? And... I've just always got a kick out of it, seeing the interplay between them. Yes, well put. Because I love this idea of there are multiple deities here. They're all vying for mortals' affections and worship and belief. Like, what happens if uh, a worshiper of Pelor starts worshiping Arathis and stuff like that? Do they share? 
do they like sharing? Or what happens when you have um, uh, someone like Fekna around and he's spreading discord and whispering secrets into people's ears? And then you have Ayun who's like, hey, we should have open you know, knowledge, but then you're just whispering things that are causing harm to the world. How do we fight? Like, do we use proxies? Can we actually fight each other? What is preventing gods from being inside of the world, like slugging it out with each other? I mean, that's a very good point. And there, depending on which world you're in and when, there there are real answers to that. Uh, especially that last one with uh, how would gods, wouldn't gods just fight themselves, each other to the death? And the answer is sometimes, yeah. Especially <laughs> there, there are certain t- t- periods in time where the gods had writ large to just literally take their actual selves and go to the material plane and duke it out with each other. And this caused a number of calamities, including, I believe, what is just called the calamity, uh, mm-hmm. the great calamity, where the gods wreaked havoc on the world such that everything got reset. That's like one of the, the reset buttons they used at some point, uh, along with all sorts of other wars. But usually uh, there is a reason that the gods are not able to go there. There is either like a agreement between gods or there's one particular god that is uh, like v- at least vaguely strong enough to say, hey, if anybody goes there, I'm going to stop them. And the other deities know that they can't take him to fight. Or there is literally an over-god, a, a higher deity over these deities that is supreme over them and can tell them, no, you are not going to do that. Um, the, the second case I mentioned is true in the plane of Theros. There is uh, one of the, one of the el- eldest gods basically says, hey, I'm stronger than basically any of you by yourself. Anybody goes there and starts messing around, I'm going to beat you up and send you back. And that more or less works until it doesn't. But I, I very like the, uh, the third approach, personally. The, there, is an, there is a over-deity, a, some, one who has more supreme power. Uh, of course, then you have to approach, okay, so then what is their motivations and what are, why are they letting the good and evil deities both exist and interact with each other in the world, which I think can get very interesting. Yeah. Well, you kind of touched on my next question. I'll just go ahead and get in there, too. Like, in a world where multiple gods exist, what do you think is the right way to handle their place in the world? Like, uh, you kind of went in there, too. Like, you you like the idea of there being this over-god, this over-boss, over-everyone, over-deity. How did you word it? Yeah, over-deity was one of the ones I said over-god. Okay. Yeah. But, like, okay, how does that work? What makes them so much better to be able to do that in your world, let's say. So, well, I, I want to make, to make like three different asides here, which we can, we can talk about my world, but to talk about Faerun for a second, there actually is, or at least was, it's a, canonically, um, an over-deity over Faerun. There was this being known as Ao, which is literally like the letter A, the letter O, and that was all they were known as, um, which may be an allusion to Alpha Omega, but neither here nor there. Um, so AO basically existed pretty um, non-interactively and until something would upset like the cosmic balance so badly that he just has to get involved and like stop them. 
Mm. And it's a character that very, very rarely appears and is very significant when it does. Uh, very much the one above all or that kind of thing from comics. Yes. Um, and I think it's actually a pretty good approach. And uh, in my world, uh, well, of course, I, I run into the same problem as you is there's a lot I could tell you, but then it'd be on the air. And then uh, if my players ever uh-huh. found it, it'd be interesting. But um, what I will say is that there is um, a deity that is stronger than all the others that keeps an eye on the others. And he has a reason, a very good reason, in his mind at least, for why he lets them do what they do and why he restricts them. And I think it's important that there there do be a reason if you're going to have an overgod in some part, uh, like why they do let the gods run wild to an extent or why they restrict them to an extent. But to your kind of higher question, which is like, how do multiple gods interact and how, how, how do they handle in one world having multiple gods? I think the, the easiest way is a very Greek approach and one that matches uh, like Theros, which I figure Theros is very much just based around Greece where none of the gods are truly all-powerful. None of them are truly in charge. They're all these powerful beings, and as I mentioned before, not truly immortals, but they actually need mortals to exist, or at least to keep their power. They are reliant on the worship of mortals, and they are restricted in what they're able to do based on what their own aspects are. So, I like that a lot. And for me, like when it comes to what I do for this situation, it's my overdue is just God. And that's how it is. Like he allowed this world to be created by imperfect beings that weren't able to actually bring life into it. So he did to teach them a lesson of like, hey, you think you can create, but you're not the creator. And he allows good and evil gods to exist in this realm together Kind of the same sense where you'll see like uh, it's one of the Peters. I want to say it's first or second Peter. Well, there's only the only two options. And where he goes, uh, Peter says about God, like he allows people to live for a while so that they have a chance to be redeemed. I butchered that verse. <laughs> but it's that idea of like giving people time to repent. And that's kind of the way I'm viewing God's philosophy on them is like, hey, you think you're God, but let's. Let's get to that point of oh, re- recognizing who God actually is. So he allows Vecna to run wild. He allows Orcus to run wild every now and then because he knows that along the way, you know, Primus will intervene or uh, Ayun will intervene or Bahamut will intervene or something like that. And to the point where they're squabbling with each other, they're not spending as much time in the material plan. Not that they ignore it, but they're too worried about their concerns here. Like they'll gift they're champions with power and stuff like that, but like not enough to where one has a clear advantage over the others, the, but they're all vying for that too. Cause they know how important belief is to keeping them in existence. So I, I kind of use like the American gods idea, uh, which spoilers for my recommendation in that, you know, gods need belief in order to exist outside of capital G. Right. And I think that's, you know, one of the most, uh, important and significant differences when it comes to gods versus God. Uh, 
when you're looking at gods in in D anD D, especially in Theros, but this is true in in D anD D, they're very very reliant on people. They are not self sustaining. They're not self existing. They exist because people believe in them, and they have power because people. Believe in them. Hmm. Well, let's go there too. Like. I mean, from our knowledge of how other gods work within D&D, what can we learn about how our god interacts with our world? Well, I'd say that, that as mentioned before, that's one of uh, a huge difference is that, that like god, god is self-sustaining, that mm-hmm. uh, he interacts uh, with our world in the ways that he does because he loves us and because he wants to interact with us, not because he has some need for as many people as possible to acknowledge his existence. Yeah, precisely. I mean, you, you put, hit it on the nail there. Uh, God doesn't need us, but he still chose us. As compared to these beings, these l- lower G gods that require humanity in order to keep existing, which, I mean, kind of, if you're going to go meta, it's, in the sense of as we created these gods, otherwise, if no one thinks about them, no one will know they exist anymore. <laughs> so that's a lot of fun there. But like God doesn't need us, but he still chose us. And that's a more personal relationship for me that I, I love about what we can have with God is that sense of he is so mighty and above me, made me, chose me out of everyone to be his. Out of everyone here, that blows my mind versus, you know, having you know bahamut swing down and say hey guys how's it going and <laughs> he could still be hit and hurt by tiamat and something like that versus like jesus coming down in the form of man and god together however the heck the math works on that uh go ask your systematic theology professors for that part and yet being wounded dying on earth and yet still raising up being god redeeming the world blows my mind and that's a pretty big contrast with what you would see with uh, with D and D gods. Like you had mentioned, sometimes like they do seem to appear to mortals. And l- like I mentioned earlier, while there are times where the gods themselves, in their proper forms, will show up and do things, they're usually restricted from doing that, and they're only allowed to send their avatars. Uh, mm-hmm. Their their avatars are. It's, it's, it's sort of like a portion of their power and a portion of their being that they can send that is a significantly weaker than their, their true selves, not able to just completely annihilate the, the planet, basically, if they started fighting someone. But with still extraordinary power. And I will say one of my favorite things is to have, especially with Bahamut, since he's very well known for taking the form of an old man or a monk with a, a number of his forms that he'll take. I do love him kind of showing up and kind of interacting with the heroes a little bit, being really cryptic, especially if my players don't know the lore too well, or even better, if only one of them knows the lore really well. So I'll, I'll give these cryptic hints that everybody will kind of be like, oh, I wonder what that's about. And then the one guy's just sitting there with his eyes bugging out like, oh my goodness. We're interacting with Bahamut. It's a good time. Yeah. And it's so much fun because you never know how your players are going to interact with the gods you put in the world. Uh, are they going to be the Natheist that says, yeah, sure, gods are real, but I choose not to believe in them? Are they going to be wholly and completely devoted to this god and at the expense of others and 
not going to recognize the accomplishment of others. It's so there's so much that can happen in these games that like if you don't experience them, you're not going to really truly understand. Yep. And it's it's really cool, especially uh, both both in uh, you know your standard Faerun and of course my my pet world of Theros. Uh, how 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 these the gods are pretty much known factors, mm-hmm. with very few exceptions. Everybody acknowledges that they all exist and they all have a lot of power. And your generic person will not necessarily have one patron deity that they they follow and of course clerics will and you know certain people will as well but most people will have this kind of well pantheistic uh, approach to yes them. they will acknowledge and revere all of the deities sometimes and sometimes they'll have ones that are a little more on one than others but the most often is just kind of everybody depending on, on what you're there for they're very greek every you know it, it's Oh, I need. I'm farming today. Well, it's it's right to the nature goddess kind of thing, mm-hmm. and they. It, and of course, sometimes you have clerics or paladins that are very attuned to one deity. Uh, it what what's interesting is when you have uh, when you try to introduce like atheists into <laughs> a world with with like provable known deities, um, which it, it's so funny that they actually made it a kind of a. Um, like a background, I think it's actually technically a modification upon, upon backgrounds, but I don't remember exactly how it worked in the Theros source book. Um, called iconoclasts, which iconoclasts, their, I like their the whole name. thing is just that they acknowledge the existence of the deities, and that is as far as they will grant them. They acknowledge that the beings exist, and they deny them being divine in the like higher being sense. And there's like these are powerful people, and they're all jerks, and we don't want anything to do with them. Have you ever read the Dresden Files? No. Okay, there's a character there named Sonya, and he's one of three people in the world who are known as Knights of the Cross, and that they are specifically imbued with power by God to do good in the world. And he wields a sword that has, uh, I think it's one of the nails from the cross embedded inside of it. Like, and he's explicitly talked to an archangel. And he's still an atheist. And like, you don't think he's an idiot either because he gives this philosophy. He's like, hey, for all I know, like, they're just a higher level of being than I am. That doesn't necessarily make them, you know, heavenly or something like that. It's like, I I get your logic. So you can see how, even in a world where like, you can see a a goddess of healing or a goddess of nature, like, bring something into the world. And you can see the fruits of that labor, sometimes quite literally. And, you can still say, well, yeah, sure, they're here now, but what about when there's a drought? Yep. And you make me think of um, going going back to the Rick Riordan verse in uh, uh, Magnus Chase. That's what in, that's which series it is. In Magnus Chase, there's a main character, um, which for those of you who know Percy Jackson, Magnus Chase, Annabeth Chase is cousin, and it's a Norse pantheon thing, not Greeks. Um, so the Valkyries exist, and one of the Valkyries, which are the Valkyries, are just these chosen women that, do, uh, for the purposes of this, chosen women that fulfill the uh, the needs of Asgard. So there's one Valkyrie who is a practicing, believing Muslim, and it's this really interesting scenario where they 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 
and they address it with her at least once in an actual conversation between her and the main character. Just so you you're in Asgard, you have the powers of the Valkyrie, you've met the gods, you know they exist. How are you still a, a believing practicing Muslim? And I think I think that was one of my favorite interactions with with uh, with her and with in that book series. It's a very interesting conversation between them and her kind of being like, I think her answer was something along the lines of, uh, I, and I'm butchering this because I don't know Islamic philosophy very well, but that she believed this was a form of, the best thing I can, I can relate it to is a kind of a purgatory kind of thing where she just, it was a trial she had to get through in her life is the, the best mm. way I can put it. Where, like she can acknowledge what's happening around her, but she doesn't necessarily uh, believe in the divinity and afterlife nonsense of it. Now that's a series I need to get back into. I, I stopped like halfway through the Roman stuff, and I know we get to the Egyptians and the Norse gods as well that Ray Orton got into. So I have those books, but I just haven't read them yet. Oh yeah, King, the Egyptian one, Cain Chronicles, pretty much the only one that's mostly not related to the others. But boy, is it fantastic! I would I would recommend that. Um, okay. Things get a, a little out of hand the later into his writings you get. So uh, I, I did love Heroes of Olympus, but Magnus Chase starts going off the rails a bit, and Trials of Apollo is just very strange to me. But I liked it yeah. enough, so I would recommend reading. Okay. Uh, so earlier we had also mentioned that you know deities aren't the only things here in the cosmology. There's also like demons and devils, and I always get those mixed up. Like, which one's supposed to be lawful evil? Which one's supposed to be chaotic evil? Yeah, but like, uh, how does the subject of having demons and devils existing in the world come up in the games you've been in? The answer for me is it really depends on who's DMing and what the group is like. So, as I mentioned, I first learned D&D and played with a bunch of my high school friends and I went to a public high school. So it was a very, it was very not a Christian environment. And so those guys, of course, had a very particular way that they would run them. And then, of course, I have a college. I, I went to a Christian college. And so even, even if not everyone there is a Christian, everyone kind of runs on a, a basis of, of belief. And so it'd be interesting seeing the Christian DMs and how they handle it, which is obviously very different. Yes. And then, of course, there's uh, some, some examples from popular podcasts that I, I could mention. But with, with um, uh, there's a few I could go into here. Let's, let's, I'll start with the podcast because that's the one that I'm thinking of really closely right now. Uh, there is a started, started as D&D podcast and is still uh, played with 5th edition, though, it's a little. It's gone very interesting at this point. Podcast that was created by Freddie Wong, if you know who Freddie Wong is, uh -huh. uh, and his friends called uh, Dungeons and Daddies, where the original premise <laughs> was uh, three dads and their kids all get isekai'd, sent off. Yes. They're from our world. They get isekai'd to Faerun. The kids all get kidnapped, and dads have to go get them back. And they slowly start getting D and D character powers. Hilarious not a safe for work show. podcast. <laughs> it is very not safe for work. But if you are okay with that, that is like if you, so I have I have a, a running list on my phone of my recommendations of D D podcasts. It's split into into safe for work and not safe for work ones. And <laughs> let me tell you, uh, Dungeons and Zaddies is the top uh not safe for work one. Boy, it's funny. yep. But my point being is that they actually have um, 
the characters all end up going to uh, hell at some point, which they they don't stick very close to Faerun lore, even though they they call it playing in Faerun. But it's so they go to a singular hell, and they end they end up interacting with the devil for a while, and of course, based on kind of their personal beliefs, he ends up being kind of this sympathetic character, and it's funny and interesting, but very like. Yeah, I don't know about that one. Yeah. See, so, like that's that's one extreme. Um, I, I've seen in very much in abstract. I've seen people who try and um, do more using D and D as a system, but playing more with our understanding of reality, which uh, can can end pretty weird. But as as for me personally, um, very much in the style of. How, how I was mentioning with the deities, how they're kind of just beings with some power. That's, that's kind of where I go with them. Um, so, and as you mentioned before, demons and devils often mixed up. Demons are the chaotic evil entities that by and large have no plans in mind, nothing particular. They just want death, destruction, and chaos. They're pretty simple to run for the most part until you get to a few of them, mostly the demon lords like Orcus. They're just here to cause chaos and destruction and evil, and that's that's pretty much all you need to know about them. The devils are where things get interesting. They're the lawful evil ones. They're they're the ones that you might make a deal with, usually. Now, people uh, people will do um, infernal packs uh, very differently depending on what there's going on, and the warlock class as a whole very much was originally based on the idea of making a deal with a devil but has very uh, expanded in concept from, from that original. But to talk about uh, this one particular example, the most recent character I played was actually a Pact of the Fiend Warlock. So yeah. starting at level one, he, he was this kind of amnesiac guy who had these powers. He acted a little bit like an Isekai character because he seemed to have like a, like a, World War II era revolver and be a soldier, uh, but he wasn't. And I had I had a whole story arc planned with him where he like uh, had lost his family to a demonic incursion. And uh, for those of you who don't know, the demons and the devils have an infinite war going on at all times. And so I, I had the reasoning that. He's like, well, if the if the if the angels weren't going to save me, he was going to turn to the devils, and then then slowly realized what a terrible idea that was. Mm. Uh, except for in the second session, he died. That was a whole whole mess. But he later came back into the campaign, um, and the the devil that he had made a deal with was one of the main antagonists at this point in the campaign. Mm. Um, he was trying to make an incursion onto the material plane. Uh, he was trying to just basically take over the world. You know, classic evil guy stuff. And so a, a very large part of my personal character plot and a, a fair bit of the act, the overall plot then became um, freeing my character from the, uh, the deal he had made, which for him eventually meant he, uh, he submitted himself to one of the good deities um, and basically, in in order, in return for not getting dragged back to hell and turned into a devil, which is what happens when you make a deal with a devil, 
um, in D&D. Instead, yeah. he uh, became an angel in service to a deity forever. And it was kind of this, this very interesting ending for a character. One of, the, one of the most, I think one of the most satisfying, kind of bittersweet endings. Because, you know, his family's all, all still dead, although they did, they're, they're in the upper plains. But you have, the party has fulfilled their goal. They're all the heroes. And he is just dead now. I mean, in a, in a mortal sense, he's dead. And rather than his soul going on to be a devil, his soul goes on to be an angel. But the, the ending was basically, and he spent the rest of, I'll say eternity, but realistically, the setting is weird. So not eternity, uh, serving this god. Hmm. Okay. I love when a DM will still use aspects of a character from someone, even though they're essentially gone from the campaign. Uh, I've definitely done that before. Uh, because you think, oh, my character's dead. Nothing matters. Moving on, next character. It's like, and I love when they, they twist it around and say, nope, still matters. You made this. I'm going to make it work. Oh, it's great. That oh, same yeah. campaign, uh, somebody had died uh, right when I did, and we ended up meeting the characters, uh, I think it was either mother or sister, a few sessions later, because we, we were in the area where the character lived. And we had, uh, well, we had to have a lot of interaction with them. Hmm. I think uh, on the subject of devils and demons for me, I mean, obviously, from the Christian perspective, I don't look upon them very favorably. And I make them, they're evil. They are pure evil, but that evil comes in different forms. You have the demon side, you have the devil side, you have the like the interest of, uh, we're going to make this contract and, oh, it's just going to come into being like 20 30 years down the road. You don't have to worry about that. Then you have the, like, the death and destruction. We're just going to cause that right here. In the midst of, you mentioned uh, the blood war earlier, uh, this eternal war between the two factions. So I, I always have them trying to gain a one-up on the other. How can we screw with the material plane to get more people on our side? How can we do this to get them to actually go into the Nine Hells or wherever and kill those demons, devils, and these different parts of the plains of hell and kill them there, which kills them permanently. Because I, I've mentioned this before on the podcast of, uh, I had some characters who were uh, essentially dimension hopping and they ended up in a world where Roland DeShane from the, the dark tower series was trying to stop this cult that was worshiping, uh, an eldritch abomination that once was a nuclear bomb and they managed to defeat it. But the nuclear bomb was still active. Now, early in that campaign, they had fought against a Rakshasa that they knew was going to be coming after them. So one of my characters knew plane shift, and he said, Christian, can I plane shift this into the ninth level of hell where I know he's reforming? And I'm at that moment of, how do I stop this? How do I stop this? And I realized I can't. I said, sure. So I tore up two sections worth of uh, session notes and knew had him plane shifted into the ninth level of hell, which permanently killed a lot of devils at that point in time, Yeah, which is how you permanently get rid of a lot of them. So there was, I thought of the lore implications of that. Now there is a huge imbalance because he took out, since this is a ninth layer, layer of hell, a lot of the higher ranking officials. Yep. So how does Asmodeus deal with that? Being the king, the prince of that section of the nine hells. And now I've incorporated that into the world where this one action 
uh, literally blew up their perspective of everything. So now we're at the point to where demons deal radiant damage in my world because they're still dealing with the fallout of uh, that nuclear explosion. Uh, so I, yes, it, it's so much fun bringing this stuff in. So how do I handle this subject? It's like they're evil. They're going to do evil things. You can play them. They're like the perfect example. You have, you know, demons and Nazis of like, you don't have to worry about killing them. You know, <laughs> they're evil. Just go with it. Yep. They're, they're evil. And that's all that matters in the plot. But I, yes. I, I want to hammer that down when it comes to uh, like the existence of demons and devils and, and Roxasha and Yugolots while we're talking about lower planar entities um, in, in D&D. The fact that they are evil, uh, and this, this is actually a true thing about the alignment of extra planar creatures as a general statement, especially upper and lower. The fact that they are evil, or in the case of angels, the fact that they are good is an innate part of the being of the creature. Um, mm-hmm. if, a, if a devil were to ever be good, not that they couldn't do a action that could be perceived as good, I mean, yeah, they could, but if a, if a devil was to ever truly become good, they would cease to be a devil. Like mm-hmm. It is so fundamental a difference of their nature. And the inverse of this is also true with, with angels. And, of course, one of the more famous examples is Zariel. She was uh, the angelic uh, arbiter that watched over the blood war uh, from the angels' perspective to make sure that they kept each other in check forever. But then she wanted to destroy them. And so she went down to join the battle and uh, ended up becoming a uh, devil herself. Oh, yes. Yeah. We barely scratched the surface on everything that gets into... (laughs) The cosmological side of D anD D, but uh, this episode was going to be longer, anyways, because of an announcement that Josh here is going to be making. Do you want me to go through? It or do you want to go through it yourself? Oh, you can keep going. You're doing good. Okay, so this is going to be Josh's last episode as a full host of the podcast. Now, uh, Josh, can you go through where your journey will take you next? Yeah. So. For for a while now, my episodes have been slowly more and more dispersed. Uh, it's been more spaced out when I've been here. Uh, and more, it's more or less, I'm going to take that to the extreme. I'm not going to be a, a host anymore in the, the sense. I'll still be around. I'll still be in the community. I'll be on the Discord. I'll help out from time to time. I'll guest on episodes, perhaps. If, if you uh, do another D&D or Magic episode, give me a call. But right. that being said, uh, it's it's kind of time to transition for me. Um, I'm just out of college. I'm lots of different things are changing with my life. Trying to get my career going. Going to end up moving uh, probably sometime in the near future. Uh, I've had several personal projects, uh, both podcast related and not, kind of on the back burner for a long time. And my hope is to get them out to the foreground soon. No, no firm uh, names or release schedules for any of these, but things you uh, may or may not see from me. And if you do, you will likely get uh, a nice little promotional blast from uh, from Josh Noel because he, he he was like, "Oh, please, if you do anything, tell me. I'd love to love to promote it." But yeah, so there is a there's a pretty good chance that in the near ish, when I say near ish, I mean in like the next year uh, future, you might see from me uh, my my own podcast, which would be uh, somewhat similar, but a lot more rambling. 
as you can probably tell by how I am on, on this show, I ramble a lot, and there is a uh, a version of that that my friends and I have been planning out for some time now that we might put out, as well as um, in the next year or two, it's very possible that I might be doing a D&D actual play podcast. Uh, so okay. Sneak peek of what might be to come. Gotcha, gotcha. Well, thanks for sharing all that. And when it does release, absolutely, we'll be more than happy to spread the knowledge, let more people know and subscribe to stuff like that. Cause, I mean, we don't ever want to be those people who's like, hey, you were a former host, now you're gone, and <laughs> you have no more worth to us anymore. And that that's not fun. That's not fair. I mean, we love all the former hosts that we've had uh, on this show, and we want to show them and we want to be a little bit better too about communicating to you guys listening, like when someone leaves the show and like what's going on there. So you're not just worrying, like, do they all hate each other behind the scenes? Is like something going up like that? So this is us trying to be transparent to you guys as well. So thanks for sticking out through this. And a special yep. thank you to Josh too for doing this with us to like give him, like, I mean, technically a final send off, but not really because he will be back. Yeah, finally. Like I said, yeah, final ish. I'll be around. There's, there's certainly no bad blood between us. It's just yeah. I, I've got. It's been, it's been hard enough for me to schedule uh, recordings with you guys uh, lately that I, I just didn't feel it was right to continue on as a host. Yeah, no, not everyone's me with no life or ambitions in seminary where I can just record whenever I want. And, you know, everyone's at different stages. So that's where we're at right now. And that's where Josh has to go. So I, I'm immensely grateful for everything that he's done with the show. I remember uh, the episode you were on with the guy, Who Could Beat Goku. And what was your favorite episode you recorded? I will say this one is turning out to be probably in the top three because this was a lot of fun to talk about. Um, yeah, that's good to hear. Definitely. Uh, the, one that, the one that stuck in my mind uh, is I believe it was TJ and I in our episode on the lore of Magic the Gathering. Um, especially <laughs> on the planes and how and it, it echoes this one and there's a lot of and this is a very general review and don't worry about the specifics as we get into that we'll talk for another three hours and also a lot of and also this crosses over into D&D world but we don't have to talk about that because we'll be here for another day if we talk about that so it was uh, like I said what, as I mentioned when I'm t probably going to do a very rambling podcast uh, going down on tangents is uh, a big thing, especially when I start talking about stuff like this and stuff like that. So it's a good time. Yeah, that, that was a good one. I mean, it's clear you two like love the game and just talking about it together. That was a how, how many episodes ago was that? Was that an earlier one? That was, that was pretty early into me being a host. Uh, was That's right. Okay. It no, no, uh, I'm trying to get my timeline. Correct here. It's probably last fall. It's probably fall 2022. I had to guess. Okay. Yeah, I, I always remember like first time I met you, we did that one special for live to Facebook, and you mentioned you had just seen Ghostbusters for the first time. And the moment you said that, you had like five different people like, "What do you mean you haven't seen it before?" Now, it's oh like, yeah. Hold oh, on, yeah. Let, let the man like <laughs> just talk for a second. <laughs> yep, I remember that. That was a good one. Just everybody was like, "What?" <laughs> Okay. Oh yeah. Uh, so, last question for this part: What would you have liked to have done an episode on that you'd never got the chance to do? So, I, I, like, I wrote down an answer to this question beforehand, and it's even more true based on how much we've been talking about it. 
I, I would want a dedicated episode to exactly how magic and D&D interact with each other on a lore level. Mm. <laughs> because there's a lot of stuff on that. Like, between uh, the plane chase, or, uh, no, sorry, planescape, I think, uh, I get them mixed up a bit, uh, setting for D&D, which was just basically playing a planeswalker and jumping around the different worlds of magic, to just the fact that uh, there have been two sets of D&D cards released in Magic, and how the, the interplay between them, um, and the importance of Baldur's Gate, like, just a very oddly relevant thing in uh, different properties. And of course, now Baldur's Gate 3 coming out, like, three days ago. Very topical. Okay, you have anything else, like, a little smaller you really wanted would have wanted to have talked about? Uh, I mean, any number of animes. Probably specifically some horror anime that I would that I would be a little more obscure that would be fun to talk about. But, oh, like what? Uh, for you specifically, Fuala Magic Madoka Magica. Oh, abs- man, I have that on the topics list. I wish there was someone who would talk about that with me. I mean, hey, I told you, I, if you if you have a good episode and uh, good scheduling, I will happily guess on episodes. So, uh, okay. Well, I'll go... Uh, track down Joshua, beat him up, and then force him to put that on the schedule because that's, that's something we need to talk about, man. I will happily talk to Uh And then, of course, my, my other big example of, of that genre would be Higurashi. But that mm. that would require a, a string of episodes to do any justice on because of the <laughs> timeline mess that that is. Now, we'd have to do first season, second season, and the, the semi-remake? <laughs> Yeah, the revamp show that turned out to not be a remake, which is what I watched first because I thought it was a dead remake, and then it wasn't, and I got very confused. And then the VNs, which are also technically their ah, timeline. Oh, yeah, that, that, that's the time uh, a mind screw right there. Yep. All right. Anything else uh, you want to add to this section, man, before we go on? No, nah, I'm, I'm good to jump into the next, the last, next last thing here. Okay, so recommendations. I already mentioned mine, so I'll go ahead and do that first. Mine is American Gods by Neil Gaiman. I love uh, Neil Gaiman as a writer. He just kind of speaks to me in a way that other writers don't, uh, presenting these fantastical ideas, but also bringing a really human element into them with some some dry wit and sarcasm as well, and then some overt wit and sarcasm as well. And American Gods, for those of you who don't know, is kind of this sense of, Gods exist, but they're tied to countries. So we deal with Odin and Loki and uh, other gods as well in America specifically and how they're perceived here, how Chernobog is perceived here and the Egyptian gods and the Greek gods and so on and so forth. It's And how new gods have been made by us as a society as well. Highly recommend that book. Fantastic. I, I think really I spoiled cool. a little bit of it too, but that's fine. That sounds really cool. I'll add it to my uh, eternally long and never going to finish before I die read list. Man, and, I, I just went through a list of every book that I own and like cataloged them for the first time in forever. I, there's not enough time. Nope. There never is. And that's What's your recommendation, of, uh, Josh? Like, heaven to do list. Be like, hey, can I just read all the books that I never had time to? <laughs> <laughs> so long. Cool. Uh, surely, surely we can do that up there. Um, so, I, I, just like you, I kind of uh, shortcut into my recommendation, uh, but you got it at the beginning. I did it like, at the end. Baldur's Gate three just came out, uh, and time of recording three days ago. I've I've already put 
Uh, admittedly, only like eight hours because I'm actually working now, so I, don't, I can't devote endless amounts of time to it like I, I could in summer vacation before. But, uh, oh boy, Baldur's Gate 3 is fun. Uh, it's still a little glitchy from time to time. It's uh, I've, I've had some very strange things that shouldn't happen happen. But the character creation thing is cool. You can play like 5th edition D&D classes almost exactly in the game, which is pretty cool. You can do multi-classing, uh, all of like the standard races and classes, uh, and like uh, three subclasses for each of the classes is there. It's a fun world, and it has stuff, a bunch of mind flare nonsense, which is, I think, uh, I know what I've talked about before on the podcast, because there was a Doctor Who episode. Why does that make sense? Oh, with the Ood, yes. To listen to it. You and Josh did that one. Go back and find the Ood episode with Josh and Josh. That's another <laughs> one of my favorite. Good Josh and bad Josh. And now, unfortunately, we're only left with bad Josh. But that's hey, okay. We'll make do. Not bad, Josh. Josh with bad opinions. <laughs> let's, let's, be, let's be a little nice. To Josh. Uh, you know what? I'll make him happy, and I'll say Nega Josh because I know he loves Nega Duck. <laughs> All right. All right. So, guys, thanks for listening to this episode. I know it's a little longer than what we normally do, but we just had to have a good send off here for Josh and all the good work that he's done for the podcast. So, uh, with that in mind, just shower him with praise. You see him on, are you on the Facebook group as well? I know you're in Discord. Yep. I'm on Discord. I'm on the Facebook group. Okay. Yeah. Let's let him know, like, hey, I really enjoy what you had to say here. I'm looking forward to what your next projects would be because I know we're looking forward to them too. It's been a fun time talking about this stuff. Like, we barely, like I said earlier, scratched the surface of all the things we could talk about when it comes to the cosmology of D&D. But we had to stop at some point in time. So you guys have a chance to just leave us a five-star review on your podcasting platform of choice. Uh, check us out on YouTube. We, I just did an episode about the origins. I said earlier about D&D, how it was created, and how we kind of interpret the game in our own way when we DM. That was a ton of fun. If you have some super, uh, future episode topics you want us to discuss, like let us know on Facebook, Discord, wherever. That way we can like know what you guys really want us to do and then reward you with that knowledge. We've done it before. The Tron episode we had earlier was a lot of fun to listen to. But remember, we are all a chosen people, a geekdom of priests. This was an Anazal Ministries podcast. If you enjoyed this show and would like to learn more about our network, be sure to check out the Anazal Ministries podcast network.